Well, over the past several weeks now, our call to worship has asked and answered the question, is our salvation simply a matter of us walking forward to the altar and praying a sinner's prayer? Or is there more that has taken place, especially on God's part? And we've said that our praying of that prayer is a right thing to do, yes. It's the right thing to do. But it is not our own efforts that brings us to salvation. It is not our own efforts that brings us to salvation. Our salvation is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 tell us that plainly. That our salvation is a gift from God. Given to us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And that while, yes, our walking forward is a good thing, there's so much, much more that also has taken place in those mysterious realms of God. And that was part of a late night conversation that took place between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Pharisees. In that conversation, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus that he would need to be born again born again before he could ever hope to see the kingdom of God. This man Nicodemus is thought to be one of the most learned, if not the most learned of the teachers in the Jewish leadership at the time. But though he was, he still was unable to understand the words that Jesus was saying. Now thankfully you and I have these scriptures to explain to us the reason why Such learned people as Nicodemus couldn't understand Jesus' words. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it's only the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's only through Him that we can have understanding within our minds and within our spirits. And so this dear man, who earnestly wanted to know the truth from the Lord Jesus, he was left, at least for that time being, without understanding. Now, thankfully, we do see later on that Nicodemus did finally understand. We know that because we see him openly helping Joseph of Arimathea to bury the Lord Jesus. Now, a question. What has to take place before a person can go from the condition that Nicodemus was in to a real saving understanding of the words spoken by the Lord Jesus? It'll be as Jesus said. A person must first be born again, born from above. And those words don't just mean a simple reciting of some words that we might call the sinner's prayer. It may be that, yes. But again, it is so much, much more. It requires a complete surrender of a person's soul to the Lord Jesus and a complete rebirth. The Bible scholars call that rebirth Regeneration. Regeneration. It's a change that takes place within our souls that makes us into a whole new person. A whole new person. Listen to these words in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We become a brand new person. We are born again. We become a brand new person. The old is gone. The new has come. And the evidence that we are born again is that we will change. We will change. 
Now, in today's passage, we'll read about a very unfortunate person who apparently did not go through all of those blessed steps of salvation. Yes, they probably did have some form of a spiritual experience. That's a favorite expression these days. So this person probably had what some might call a spiritual experience, an experience that was probably very close to salvation, but still falling short of the real thing. And here in this passage, we'll see the devastating, the devastating effects that take place when a person does fall short of true salvation. Almost, but not quite. Listen to these words. These come from Luke chapter 11, verse 24. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, folks, we know that all over this world, there are people who hurt. And they're in all sorts of misery. And with no answers and no relief in sight. And they cry out for help. And they find none. And if we could hear their many cries of desperation, we would no doubt hear words like, Can my life get any worse than this? Can life get any worse than it is? Perhaps you've said that at times. Can life get any worse than it is? What is the cause? What is the cause of that kind of pervasive misery? Let me assure you, the cause will almost always be the same. It will be sin. Sin on someone's part. And it emanates out from the pits of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's those unholy three that are the wellspring of all that is evil. They are the antithesis of all that is good. And they do their work really well. They spew forth an endless stream of misery and strife. But again... The question being bewailed by so many. Can my miseries get any worse? Folks, unfortunately, that question has a sad and despairing answer. Because the reality usually is, yes. Yes, a person's miseries certainly can get worse. And they most likely will. Especially for those who have once dared to cry out to God for help. Perhaps at an altar call. But then they do not follow up and they turn away from him. Why would that be? How does that take place? Listen to these words again. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man and he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it all swept clean and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits, seven other demons more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, we aren't given any details of what took place with this person that the Lord Jesus is speaking about here. But because of what takes place, and because the demon still claims that this person that he came out of still belongs to him, we're left to assume that an incomplete 
work of salvation had taken place in that person's life in some form or another, an incomplete work of salvation. They might have walked forward at an altar call, but they didn't follow through in giving their whole heart to the Lord. Perhaps this man or this woman had experienced the seed of God's word falling upon the soil of their souls as in the parable of the sower. The sower had sown seeds, but the soul could not receive it, could not receive those seeds. Listen to what the Lord says about that in this parable of the sower given to us in Luke chapter 8. Now the parable is this, Jesus said. The seed is the word of God. The word of God is powerful. Now the, par- uh, now the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path, that's where some of the seed had fallen. Now the ones along the path are those who have heard and the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rocks, some of the seed fell upon rocks. Now the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a little while, and in times of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They might have walked that aisle, prayed that prayer, but then they got back in their pickup truck and they went right back to doing what they did before. An incomplete work of salvation. They did not have a rebirth. They were not a brand new creature. Often as a person experiences the miseries of their sin, they will cry out to God for relief. And in His mercy, God will shower them with a provision of His precious Word, making it very uncomfortable for any demon that lives within that person to stay there. And as with this person that Jesus is speaking about here, the demon then will leave them. The Word of God is so uncomfortable to them that they leave that person. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, he's seeking rest. But folks, there is never any rest for those evil demons. God's word within a person that he just left had tormented that demon and made that demon miserable. But then being outside of that person was no relief to that demon either. And so the demon sought to return to the place where he was most restful. Back inside that man, he said in verse 24, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. If we'll consider these words carefully, we'll find that hidden within them is a special up-close view of a battle that most likely takes place within many of the souls of people who are on the verge of salvation, especially in those first few moments of their conversion. Now, many of the evangelical scholars today and preachers, they equate the word conversion to mean exactly the same as salvation. But some do not, and I do not. Oswald Chambers believe that, yes, conversion and salvation can take place at the very same moment, but not always, not always. Oswald Chambers believe that conversion is simply the first step 
of turning towards salvation. That's what conversion means. Converting means to turn. So it's simply that first step towards salvation. A turning to hear and to see and to taste of the salvation that the Lord Jesus is offering. But it's still prior to the full and complete step of salvation, of rebirth. Now following that line of thought, as the seed of God's word falls upon the soil of an unbeliever, it may be a wonderful sermon being preached by Billy Graham. As those words fall upon the soil of an unbeliever, that person is at first converted. They're turned to, they're drawn to Christ for salvation. But as the parable of the sower tells us, not every one of them will fully give their hearts to Christ. The soil of their souls may be too hard or too rocky. They're still unable to receive the salvation and they're still able to turn away. Now, while we can't know the exact condition of this man that Jesus is speaking about here in this passage, we'll assume that he has been in a place where he did exactly that, that he received God's Word. And he wanted what God had to offer. And so he prays a prayer, perhaps. And these words are telling us that that spirit within him could not abide with that, so he leaves. He goes to find rest. But unfortunately then, those next words, he says, I'm going to return to the house that I lived in, that man that I lived in. And he goes there and he finds the man's soul swept clean. Tells us that. He finds that soul swept clean. But there was nothing put there to replace the vacancy that that demon had left behind. The man had not allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and and fully abide within his soul, which must take place. And with that vacancy still available... That demon knew that he still had his house to go back into. He knew it was still available. And he did. And this time, he brought with him seven more demons, even more evil than himself. Listen again. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now here also, here also, we're given even more insight into the hidden workings of the demonic world. A demon no doubt lives a wretchedly miserable life. But these words imply that a demon can find some measure of rest as he comes and inhabits the soul of a man or a woman. That's where he can find some measure of rest. And it's evident from these words that a demon can see if a soul has the Holy Spirit indwelling within it. And if our soul does not have the Holy Spirit within it, then there's an open invitation for that demon and his friends to come and take possession of us. And another insight about the demonic kingdom. It's given back in the verses that we talked about last week. Verse 14 especially, where we studied about this demon being cast out of this man. And that demon had this special ability to keep this man from being able to speak. He was a demon of mute and speechlessness. Now using that demon as an example, 
If he was first driven out from a man, follow with me if you will. If that demon was first driven out from a man, and that man had not gone on forward with his salvation, then that demon would be able to return to that man and again take away that man's ability to speak. But not only that, this demon would then also bring with him seven more demons. Each of them having their own abilities to indwell and to control the nature and physical condition of that man, making that man's condition far worse than before. And listen, it gets worse. And each of those seven demons would have their own specialty of misery. Perhaps, and we have read about this in the scriptures, perhaps one of those demons would bring with them alcohol and drug addiction. Perhaps another one would bring with them an insatiable desire for pornography. Perhaps another demon would bring unfaithfulness and adultery into that person's behavior. Perhaps another demon would bring a spirit of fear, a spirit of worry, a spirit of hopelessness. Perhaps another demon would bring in a spirit of pride, self-centeredness. Perhaps another demon would bring in arguing, an unhappiness. Other demons are demons of ambition and greed and violence and hatred. Can you imagine, folks? Can you imagine that? All of those demons coming to live within a person. The demoniac in the Gadarene tombs was said to have legions of demons. Many different kinds of demons. Even thousands. But here's at least eight demons with this person that we're speaking about. How do we know that would take place? Because these scriptures that we're reading, they tell us so it took place within these scriptures. And Jesus is telling us this. And he is trustworthy. These are the pure words of God. And so we can see this taking place right within our culture. Why do people act the way they're acting? Why do they behave the way they're behaving? And they see nothing wrong with it. The spirit of immorality is so prevalent today in our culture. But this man then, his first demon comes back and he brings with him seven other demons. And now he has more difficulties, more miseries than he has ever had in his life. And so the question that I asked at the beginning, can our life get any worse than it is? The answer is yes. Yes, it can get a lot, lot worse. And it will most certainly get worse if that vacant place within our soul is not immediately filled with God's Holy Spirit. And folks, right there bespeaks this deep and demanding need for discipleship. As a soul receives the Word of God, as that person kneels and prays that sinner's prayer, church members need to immediately go to that person's side. And then take that person home with them or agree to meet with them once a week with discipleship. We see a lot of people walking forward, giving their hearts to Christ, but we see very little discipleship taking place within churches today. It is so needful. Folks, God's command to go ye and to make disciples is not just one of those options that you and I have. It's an absolute necessity to make disciples, to disciple believers, disciple those who are on the verge of or in that in-between state of belief. We need to understand that we cannot know 
when a full and complete salvation has taken place within a person's heart. We cannot assume that just because they prayed that prayer that they are really and eternally saved. For myself, I've shared with you, I asked Christ to come into my heart over and over again for months before He finally did. Why it took so long and so much pleading from me, I don't know. I do know the key to my part of my salvation was my surrender. Yes, I wanted relief, but it took me a long time to surrender my heart. That was many months. And I'm so very thankful that seven more demons didn't come in to my soul in those intervening months. Oh, I would not be here today. It was no doubt, was no doubt the protection of Christ that preserved my weak and wretched soul through those many months. But listen, continuing on. May I carry this analogy to us personally. If, in fact, all of us in this room are truly saved, if we have truly moved on forward through our conversion into full and complete salvation, then each of us, each one of us, do have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. Each of us does have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, keeping the many demons from coming back in to our soul. But does that leave those seven demons and the many, many other demons without any ability to harm us? Can they still do harm to us, though we have the Holy Spirit? Let me assure you that, yes, we are still vulnerable. Those demons are like the prince of demons, Satan. They're crafty and they're clever. Now, they cannot come back in and possess us, no. But they're able to see other opportunities that might come available to them. They're especially able to see any open areas of our body, our soul, our spirit that's left unprotected. And they'll attack those areas and bring harm wherever they can. That's so very evident and said so plainly to us in Ephesians chapter 6 where the Lord tells us, put on the full armor of God. Now, why does he say that? Let me read it. Finally, my brethren, he says. Now, remember, brethren are us believers. So he's talking to believers here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And listen to these words. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Listen to this carefully. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take up the helmet of salvation, and then also take up the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do you read your Bible daily? If you don't, that part is uncovered. That part of the armor of God is not in place. 
goes on to say, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Do you pray daily? Really pray. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Folks, this is God's answer for your and my protection against all those many demons that will this day attack us. This day. Unless we're fully covered by the full armor of God, we'll have an open area which those demons can easily see and they will attack with full force. In a book that I read once by Rick Joyner, The Final Quest, he envisions us Christians walking through life in a wounded condition simply because we do not, every moment of every day, have on the full armor of God. And where we might have neglected to put on a part of God's armor that day, we are exposed. And there's a demon just waiting. And that demon will attack and grab hold of us and will plague us with whatever abilities they have. And again, it might be any one of those that I mentioned a moment ago. It might be a demon of anger. It might be a demon of pride. It might be a demon of self-centeredness. Of arguing, a lot of arguing, a lot of anger is being expressed these days. A demon of arguing and unhappiness. You'll find yourself disputing with that one that you never argue with, but suddenly you are. Perhaps it might be a demon of unfaithfulness and you, you let your eye gaze one moment too long at that person walking by. A demon of unfaithfulness and adultery. Might be a demon of fear, of worry, hopelessness. But they'll do that. That's exactly what they do. And that's exactly why God tells us to put on the full armor of God. If we carelessly leave one small area of our body, soul, spirit exposed and unprotected, the demons will surely attack and they will dig their claws in and they'll not turn loose. And the longer we leave those demons there, the deeper their claws dig in. And the longer and harder it'll be to ever get them off. Do you have some of those days when you wake up like you usually do, but then most of the day you're angry? Most of the day you're impatient. Most of the day some other thing is taking place that you really wish would not take place. Let me suggest to you that this is what's taking place. Our only protection, our only protection is the whole armor of God, every piece of it. It is God and God alone who can protect us from the wiles of the devil. Listen to these words again and I'll close. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It is not that face that you see in front of you. This is the real enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all then to stand. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are weak and we are vulnerable. We are so susceptible to all that's taking place around us. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to put on the full armor of God every moment of every day. And then you protect us 
from the evil one. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.